Welcome to Main Street Politics. My name is Daniel Bonham. Hey, it's a beautiful day here in Salem. The sun's still out. We have a special guest this afternoon. We brought in a agency head. We're going straight to the top here to figure out what's <laughs> going on in a vast majority of Oregon, which is our forest. We brought the state forester here, Peter Doherty. Welcome to Main Street Politics. Uh, thanks for having me. No, it's wonderful to have you. And, you know, the challenge is you do not have a lot of social media presence. We like to do background. We like to really take a deep dive into people's past and know about them. You're very secretive on the Internet, so... We're going to have to just ask questions and have you answer. Well, that's because every time I move, I change my name. So uh, you you were going to ask me what would people be surprised about. So I can tell when I know people by whether they call me Peter or PJ or the, you know. Oh, my gosh. You have more than one name. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. Aliases? No, they're all based Peter Joseph, PJ. It just happened by accident the first time I moved and. Then when I moved to Oregon, I thought, could I change it back? And sure enough, I'm now Peter here in Oregon. Uh, but my wife wouldn't put up with that. So in Eugene, I'm known as PJ. So in my personal life in Oregon, I'm PJ. And then as a state forester, I'm Peter. So uh, you probably were looking in the wrong place. No, it's, <laughs> but seriously, that's wonderful. So my son, we named him John Gately Bonham, which is also my father's name. But my dad's brothers growing up, they called him Jack. And my dad hated that nickname. So all the brothers had nicknames for each other that they didn't like. And so when we wanted to name our son, I loved that name, John Gately Bonham, powerful name. And so I said, Dad, do you mind if I name my son this? And then, you know, we'll call him Jack. And he's like, yeah, just don't call me Jack. (laughs) And so I get this. And so what we track, though, now over the years is who knows our son well, because they'll call him Jack. And the people that don't know his formal name, they call him John. John. Yeah. Yeah. Especially teachers. Like, we know who he lets inside the circle of trust. When teachers say, well, John's performance in school is this or that, we say, oh, gee, he hasn't told you. He didn't tell you his real name. So born in Atlanta, Georgia? Yes. And what was life like in Atlanta, Georgia? Uh, Not a lot of recollection of the past. I'm not good with time. But, uh, no, it was great. It It was interesting. My folks were from Ohio, so I wasn't considered a southerner when I was outside of Atlanta. When I'd leave Atlanta, they'd always say, where are you from? And I'd say, you know, Atlanta. And they'd go, yeah. Whenever I was outside of Atlanta in Georgia, they'd say, where are you from, boy? And I'd say, Atlanta. And they'd say, where are your folks from? And I'd say, Ohio. And they'd go, there you go. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you find UC Berkeley from Atlanta, Georgia? Okay, so um, at the age of 16, uh, we moved to Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah, so... I did not like where we moved to in Los Angeles. Where um, did you move? It's a big town. Uh, yes, it was in the San Gabriel Valley, and I won't be more specific okay. than that. Yeah. Uh, but um, I had not really, I mean, racism in the South was really out front and transparent. In L.A., it was really under the scene and mm. in a lot of ways more vicious. You know, the when I arrived in L.A., I had read all the magazines, national magazines, and I I thought I was moving to paradise. Not so much. Yeah. Um, so um, spent a couple years there, the last two years in high school, and then started looking for someplace to go to and then found the Bay Area. At least there were some trees in the Bay Area, which would lead to maybe an interest in forestry, whereas in L.A. <laughs> yes. The, when I drove across coming out, I saw the San Gabriel River, and when we drove across it, it was solid concrete. And I was like, whoa, this was not what I expected. 
But I got to like the San Gabriel Mountains. They're different, and you'll get you you can get used to any ecosystem. So going to UC Berkeley, did you know what you wanted to study? Uh, yes. So I went in as a math major. Okay. Yep. And so ended up then double majoring in dramatic art and political science. Dramatic art. See, this is where I think normally we ask this question <laughs> at the end. Like we we try and surprise our guests on this podcast with what's something that people would be surprised to know about you. This is what I thought it would be. Yeah. And so, uh, well, then I... Uh, ended up working in the geology department as a machinist apprentice, which is evidently what you do with a, a bachelor's of art in political science and dramatic art, uh, or can do. Yeah. And then as a petrographic technologist. So never actually did anything with the theatric art degree. For, yeah, for a while. But, you know, it. Um, I always did lighting. And so the hours I worked were not conducive to maintaining my marriage, you know, because I'm, you know, you go in there after everybody else is done and work from eight until midnight, you know, and you do shows really late at night. So, well, this is really building up. (laughs) Most people listening to this are going to say, this totally makes sense that Peter's now our state forester. That's correct. So how do we go from math and theater and geology to forestry? So, uh, living in the Bay area, we wanted to move to a more rural part of the state and we had uh, met some folks that were doing forestry and it sounded like a great way to get a rural job. So, I went back to get a second bachelor's in forestry. Okay. And when I got that, uh, they offered me 20000 a year to get a doctorate degree. And that was pretty good money at the time. So I found myself uh, getting a PhD. And then I guess the most rural I ever got was I moved to Flagstaff to become a professor of forest management and ecological economics. Okay. So one other thing I've been curious about. You're missing the tip of your finger. Ah. Is well, there a good story tied to this? Well, that's really generous. So for those that are watching <laughs> us on cable uh, 27, <laughs> I got or not watching us on that, uh, I got about a half-inch stump left of what used to be a good three- to four-inch finger. So thanks for that <laughs> characterization. It's a little piece missing. Um, and just because a correct medical term is stump, it doesn't have anything to do with forestry. That, no think. pun intended. No okay, pun okay. intended. Yeah. Um, so, no, it actually happened in my dramatic art days as well. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Okay. Forestry, you know, sometimes we're out with, you know, live tools and... Yep. Nope. Dramatic art. Dramatic art. I would not have guessed that. You're, you're really keeping us on our toes here. Well, so I've told, um, spun many a tales about the incident. But they've all been uh, in the oral tradition, and none have been recorded. And so uh, <laughs> it's going to be much better. Uh, they grow much better when they're retold through that oral tradition. So I'm going to honor that. Yeah. We'll, I'll tell you the story sometime off the record. Yeah. We, yeah. Cause <laughs> or then, one of the stories. <laughs> yeah. We would, we would hate to put you in a box. Yeah. That's, that's all right. So when I was going to forestry school, we used to hear all these great stories about older forestry professors like Stark or Leopold or John, uh, Bob Caldwell or, you know, the greats in forestry, great crazy stories. Yeah. And so as I became older, I realized it was part of my mission to uh, create crazy stories for the next generation of foresters. So, Having served <laughs> uh, for a while in the aviation industry, uh, I did note that it was your ring finger. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, we had many a safety videos of not wearing solid metal wedding bands so I, i'm not going to make any guesses but you know i just uh, yeah the other thing that works really well is chicken shears 
So one of the questions that uh, we wanted to put forward to you today was, you know, interacting with the legislature. You know, obviously coming on a podcast is typical interaction. You do this all the time. You know, the representatives like to come put you on the record. Uh, but much like coming and testifying, I mean, that's a lot of the interaction. Uh, but what, what are some of the other interactions uh, that you have with representatives and, and any strange questions or interactions that you've had? Well, you, you jumped to the strange one, which was this is podcast, but uh, it's more modern, which is great. And I got in my notes that we need to start doing podcasts because oh, it's wow. a great way, uh, I think, to get out information. Uh, we see as our role as providing credible, neutral information around any sort of policy topic, uh, sort of regardless of what the policy position is. But too often we're brought in too late in the process or way in the tail end. Um, so we also do just try to reach out to new legislatures and let them know what we do as a department, what our role is uh, in all the aspects of our business, and then try to let them know that we're here to provide credible information, hopefully neutral. Yeah. You know, that's hard, but that's what we'd like to do. So one of the other interesting things about your department is it seems like everybody that comes and visits this office has some sort of an accent. Is that a requisite to, to be in the leadership of the Department of Forestry? Well, so I was going to, I mean, so first of all, you the question had said Canadian. I'm like, what is he talking about? <laughs> and uh, so, and I'm not good at recognizing accents, but I, I do know that our chief of fire protection uh, is from Boston. I've been told he has an accent. So, and he was actually preparing my ways and means um, presentation for me, you know, you go testify, and he keeps using the phrase, fires ignited. So I'm like, God, why do you say it that way? Why don't you just say fire starts? Yeah. And then I realized he has a real problem with ours. <laughs> fire starts. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but so I, just interestingly, what would you characterize my a accent as? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's some Georgia influence, there's some, but yeah, rough Ohio, and tumble, forestry, you know, school of hard knocks, obviously <laughs> with the you know the theatrical background. So I mean, yeah, I used to always get the parts of like Lenny and of mice and men, or you know, kind of play with the rabbits, Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a public affairs director that said I had a face for the radio and a voice for the newspaper. Oh, <laughs> I resemble those remarks. <laughs> Uh, that's one thing I refuse to do is go back and listen to the, my own podcast because I can't stand the sound of my own voice. Um, so you've got Travis uh, currently serving in a temporary capacity, I believe. You know, do we get him back in Eastern Oregon? Is that still the plan? Um, kind of. <laughs> oh, wait a second. So actually, I'm, we're going to move his duty station back to Primeville um, at the end of June as planned. But I'm going to keep him on special assignment until October to continue his support of the Governor's Council on Wildfire. You know his level of expertise in wildfire, wildfire funding, and he's really critical to re leading that work. So the plan is to have him move back into his area director position uh, starting in October. Yeah, that was Travis Medema. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to be so informal and use only his first name. Um, so out of curiosity, though, you're, you kind of segued a little bit there into fire and fire season. Uh, what do Oregonians need to know about fire risk and the fire season, especially this upcoming season in Oregon? Okay, so um, one thing I think people think about, they we just went into fire season in our first district on June 1, uh, but we've already had 137 fires in 2019. 
with about a thousand acres burned, so or impacted by fire. So, on state lands or on all lands? On ODF protected lands okay. only. Um, the um, and while normally Eastern Oregon and uh, Southwest Oregon or Southern Oregon usually experiences the bulk of our fires and the bulk of our acres burned, um, our projections this year are showing higher than normal risk in Northwest Oregon. Northwest Washington is already in high risk of fire season. And as the fire season progresses, it's going to be moving down and we're going to see higher than normal fire risk in Western Oregon, which is uh, real different. And uh, it's due to uh, drought conditions, above average temperatures, and uh, below average summer rainfall on in Western Oregon. So you'll know that normal fire season is not great in southern or eastern Oregon, and so with the addition of the risk in western Oregon, uh, we're very concerned about that, and we'll be watching that closely. So what, if anything, is the department doing now to prepare for the situation you just described? So we always think about continuous improvement. We have after-action reviews after every fire season. We uh, think about how to improve that, where could we make greater uh, gains in terms of efficiencies. And you know, as I think you know, our fire season has been getting increasingly uh, worse. So they've increased by about 200% in the numbers of acres burned on our protected lands. It's because of uh, the increase in warmer temperatures, prolonged drought. Uh, we are just seeing longer fire seasons and uh, greater risk. So one of the things we've been doing is we've been investing more in detection. So one of the best things you can do with a fire is catch it early and keep it small. Right. And so uh, early detection and rapid response. And so our severity resources are critical for that. And then with the camera detections. But this year, especially uh, the Emergency Fire Cost Committee, which is our landowner fund, uh, has uh, done a special investment to get us forward-looking infrared and night vision capability for the one aircraft we own. And that should really help us. We'll be able to spot fires at night. And then when we get into those parts of the season where we have smoke and it's hard to detect fires um, through detection cameras or via smoke, we'll be able to fly and see through the smoke and be able to find out where, um, you know, we may have a lightning start that we wouldn't otherwise know about. So it says it's huge investment, and it's going to be, I think, a huge improvement. We're hoping to have that on sometime in July. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, so last year, my first experience with fire season, I remember getting a text message from John Huffman, my predecessor, saying, oh, by the way, welcome to the fire district. It, it, you know, this, unfortunately, is, is coming out where we are. We had a lightning storm come through, and on the edge, leading edge of the storm, no rainfall. It was just lightning. I think there were 95 starts that night, of which 90 were immediately caught and put out. Of the other five, three were then captured the next day, but the other two resulted in some significant fires, one uh, outside of Moffat and then the other just south of Lake Billy Chinook. And uh, fascinating that a fire could go undetected overnight. Again, 95 of them started 90 identified attacked and put out and then two smoldering unseen unidentified so it's fantastic to hear that we've got new technology yeah. and new process to potentially eliminate that in the future 
Yeah. The interesting thing is 73% or so of the fires are human-caused. Right. And so the majority of fires are human-caused, and the majority of those are within a mile of the urban interface. We can catch a lot of those because they're not all at once. But they do uh, use up vital resources and initial attack capability. So if we have that going on and we get a lightning bus where we can get 95 starts, that's where we have the challenges. And 80% or so of our acres burned are due to lightning because yeah. it's the one or two fires that get away that everybody hears about that really drive up our cost and, you know, burn up the acres. So go back to human caused, if you would, just for a second and clarify for folks listening what all that entails. It's not just arson. It's, you know, overheated car pulled off into the wrong area, carelessness. Exactly. And so I mentioned we already had 137 fires. Uh, 136 of those were human caused. And most of that was backyard burning. And you'll remember we had an unusual heat spell back in May. Mm -hmm. And a number of backyard burns escaped because people weren't aware of what the fire hazard was or they didn't realize how, you know, we had just had snow. And then all of a sudden this hot spell, all of a sudden the dry grasses and then things can move quickly. And so staying really aware of what the conditions are in. And if you have a, a burn permit through the county, make sure you've really cleared around the burn area and right. then make sure it's out before you quit watching it. It can cause a lot of damage. No, it's easy to get lulled to sleep with this. I saw a post the other day of snowfall up at Timberline Lodge on June 7th. Yeah. Inches of snow. And you would think, oh, okay, well, if we're still getting snow, then I can obviously burn. But Call the local number if you're yeah. in your backyard. You know, make yeah. sure that you're either the county or if within fire. You're within one of our fire districts. Call our fire district; they'll be able to give you all the information you need. So the other thing that I really appreciated uh, in the off season, in the interim, during fire season, uh, the legislative calls that you had to keep us updated. Those were fantastic. But how do we get more legislators to engage in this process and come look at what this fire fighting activity actually looks like? to fully understand what all's involved in this. How do we get them interested? How do we get them out? Um, well, we've been working on that, and we're actually at the point of, uh, so we do a lot of uh, fire preparation, and we have a communication plan, uh, and uh, we will think about which legislators have perhaps expressed interest or are on one of our critical budget committees or our policy committees, and think about inviting them out. Um, you know, we talked earlier about our interactions with uh, legislators here in the Capitol. Well, these last uh, six out of seven fire seasons have been really bad, and we go, we now do these uh, when it gets severe, these weekly briefings, and we just invite all legislators. And I, so it's, there's a lot more interest in understanding now, which is not great because it means we're having bad fire seasons, right, right. but uh, the interest is there. And I think the, uh, also, invites from the colleague can be so you and and connect with us. And when we have a fire, we we're really interested in getting people out um, to really understand what it takes to when you have a large incident. Yeah. So new legislators come in all the time, and we are all absolute experts on every topic. Most certainly. Yeah. No. Obviously <laughs> not. So it's got to be interesting for someone like yourself in charge of a given task where, you know, you've taken a deep dive 
with your education, with your life experience. Like, this is what you do for a living. So how do you deal with some of our harebrained ideas when we come in and we say, we've got this wonderful new policy idea? How do you coach it? How do you, how do you engage in that process to try and ultimately end at good policy? So the first thing I don't do is call it a harebrained idea. Whoops. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> Secondly, it's like asking, oh, that's a bad question. It goes back to my professor days. As soon as you say, hey, that's a stupid question, students shut up. They quit talking. They quit paying attention. So I think what we really want to do, and I said this before, uh, provide good information and neutral. So we'll uh, the first step would be to try to understand what you're trying to achieve. What's the outcome you're trying to achieve as opposed to just the particular vehicle that you might be using. Because a lot of times there may be a different vehicle to achieve the same outcome more efficiently. So we would seek to understand what you're trying to achieve and then try to uh, inform you of what the consequences. And uh, so I guess the, a lot of what people don't understand is uh, the complexity of some of the relationships between funding and how things are funding and how that might interact with other aspects of our business. But uh, we try to listen to what you want to achieve and then give you the information uh, to make it achievable. Now, you might think that sounds really uh, altruistic on our part, but frankly, we're trying to make it so you're not making our lives more miserable in the way <laughs> we do our job. It sounded job. very selfish to me, actually. I was like, <laughs> yeah, it ah. is, well, so that's a, one of the things that I find um, often. Uh, I, I think I'm um, honest and have and really value honesty and integrity. Those yeah. are my core yeah. values. Uh, but I'm also uh, kind of lazy, and to actually not be honest is, is a lot harder work if you want to be good at, uh, say, being a liar, perhaps. And, it's uh, harder to keep track of, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> but I do believe I have a core value. And then uh, treating people equitably and increasing diversity in my workforce. Um, I value that really highly. But if I didn't and all I cared was about the most productive workforce, I would treat people fairly yeah. and have a diverse workforce because you get a much better range of ideas. Right. So it's interesting to me sometimes that um, the best policies from an ethical point of view are also the best policies from a business point of view. No, that's fantastic. Um, so one of the things I get uh, really curious about and you know, this is a policy near and dear to this day as truckers were here, you know, folks from the logging industry, from the trucking industry came to oppose a carbon bill that is going to move forward in the form of a cap and trade system. And, and I get really curious how this conversation in carbon will impact the Department of Forestry and the efforts that you guys are putting forward. First, I'm going to start with some great news about forestry. So um, th this bill started a session ago or a couple of sessions ago, the discussion, and the Global Warming Commission was relooking at uh, forest ecosystem carbon, how much carbon is stored and sequestered in our forested ecosystems. And so we got involved, and at the request of the legislature, we took over the forest ecosystem. Three studies we're doing, the forest ecosystem carbon, what's in the forested pool, uh, the carbon in the wood products pool, mm -hmm. and then the third study would be simulations about what might we do different to increase carbon storage in either of those two pools, which are the pools associated with forestry. The good news is there's, I think, 3.2 billion metric tons of carbon uh, stored in Oregon's forest. That's a, a lot. 
in terms of what we sequester every year is, and this is net flux into the system, is around 31 million metric tons of CO2 equivalents. And that's about half of all the total emissions from all other sectors in Oregon. So we're the one sector that doesn't have emissions. I mean, you know, plants both sequester and emit carbon dioxide and you know, it's a long process, but overall, we're sequestering about half of the emissions that currently are going on. Um, the way it's going to impact forestry is already impacting forestry. The increase we've seen in fire risk and fire severity, uh, the increases in temperature, drought, the only thing different from the models is it's perhaps happening sooner than we thought it would. You've lived in Oregon, I believe, longer than I have, but uh, when I first got here, they say you would only need an air conditioner for one week of the summer. And we finally broke down and bought one last winter because it isn't one week of the summer anymore. So uh, that's one of the issues. Uh, and then the other issues is starting to impact. Uh, we're, we're concerned about the impact to water flow and water quality, particularly about temperature in our salmon. So, yeah. uh, But good news is we're sequestering a lot of carbon. And um, and then we're also uh, sequestering a lot in wood products, and wood products are uh, much more green building. Uh, well, I'm gonna get in trouble with the concrete and steel folks, but no, you're fine. It's, yeah. it's 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 a much uh, lower carbon footprint than concrete or steel. There's plenty of room in the marketplace for the cross laminated timber. Oh well, yeah. I'm glad you think yeah. so. I have not studied that that closely. Um, but. Interesting, though, that you say that you just bought an air conditioner. Out where I live in the Dalles, you actually go from having your fireplace on one day to your air conditioner on the next. And in some cases, with the way my wife likes to keep a regulated uh, house, it could be both in the same day. You could have the AC on midday, (laughs) and you could be having the fireplace on keeping you warm at night. So, you know, east of the Cascades, it's a different world over there. So we've talked about the role of the forest in carbon. We've talked about how to deal with legislators and our harebrained ideas. But every once in a while, you know, a legislator comes up with a fantastic bill. If we look back to 2018 and the first real opportunity for this office to put forward some quality legislation. And I remember the day I got the phone call. I, I, the House Republican office called me and said, you've got to put forward two legislative concepts. And my answer was, what's a legislative concept? And so I had to go through a process there to even figure out what that meant. you got to write two bills. And so ultimately, to put it simply, though, it's identify a problem, propose a solution. And there's a story. I was out in uh, Wheeler County talking to the sheriff uh, sheriff Chris Humphrey out there, and I was talking to him about the challenges as a sheriff in Wheeler County, and population of fourteen hundred people. And he talked about things that sheriffs don't normally talk about. Normally, you hear about training expenses, uh, vehicle maintenance costs, you know, things that they need, budgetary items that they want put in place. Sheriff Humphrey said, "Rep. Bonham, if you do anything for me, it's economic development, bring jobs back to Wheeler County." And so my question was, what did people do in Wheeler County before they were out of work? And he said it used to be that we were very active in the timber industry. And so I called my staff, Dylan Amo, uh, who is fantastic, and I said, hey, Dylan, what do we do? How do we put forward a solution to help move forward with some more healthy forest activity? 
And so we got a little team together and started throwing concepts and, and ultimately approached the Department of Forestry with a concept to allocate some money for the Good Neighbor Authority Agreement that the governor assigned with the U.S. Forest Service. And what a wonderful result. In 2018, we allocated $500,000 to this wonderful program that does great things. Yeah, and so um, thank you, because um, I wouldn't have remembered the bill. No, <laughs> just I heard, I heard that you uh, call it the money. When you refer to that allocation money, you call it House District 59's HB 4118 money. Yeah, well, I, if I could remember that, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but all kidding aside, um, it is a, a really, uh, you know, we talk about really fire and what we're doing to do for fire. Well, the long-term game in getting ahead of fire is being proactive and reducing the risk. And so not only does it have an opportunity to help our rural communities, which is another really important thing, we should be able to make our uh, forests safer and lower risk from fire, and we should have our rural communities being able to make a living doing that. So anyway, the with a Good Neighbor Authority um, program, we've gone from very little activity to where we've just sold our fifth timber sale uh, in Oregon on national forest uh, systems, and we'll have two more completed by the end of the biennium, so from zero to seven timber sales. And then, especially with this new uh, influx of money from your bill, we want you made it clear you wanted us to try to be innovative and do something new. And we knew one of the challenges with timber sales was not having enough timber ready, timber sale ready products through the NEPA. So I got good news. Our first uh, contract NEPA analysis for categorical, categorical exclusion uh, for 3,000 acres on the Fremont Wainema was signed. It's going to treat all 3,000 acres. It'll turn into about five timber sales. And we have two more in the works. And we think... Uh, the money we get from those timber sales will then allow us to do more NEPA analysis and just provide additional treatments on federal lands without any more influx of state money. That was kind of startup money that got us going, and we should be able to use the timber revenue generated by timber sales to do more. So we're going to try something new here. If you wouldn't mind... Uh... Uh, diving right into this, what we're going to call this segment, Lightning Round, which again, with the fire starts and, uh, or what was it? Fire ignitions? Fire, <laughs> fire ignited. Uh, yeah. Fires ignited. Uh, fires ignited round. No, lightning <laughs> round. Uh, we're just going to fire some questions at you and see how you do. So you've got free time this weekend. What do you do? Uh, garden or fish. Garden or fish are good answers. Those are acceptable. What's your favorite state park? I don't have one. Wrong. Okay. It's Beverly Beach State Park. Oh. What's your go-to beverage of choice? Either uh, IPA or uh, at least a 12-year-old scotch. That's correct. Chocolate <laughs> or peanut butter? Uh, chocolate. Wrong. It's both. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. <laughs> Which school offers a superior education, Linfield or UC Berkeley? UC Berkeley. No, uh, actually, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that one. Of all the places you've lived... It depends on what field, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> See? Uh, agree to disagree. Uh, of all the places you've lived, which was your favorite? Uh, the Bay Area. The Bay Area. Oh, Oakland. Wrong. False. Oregon. That's what he meant to say. Sorry, listeners. Uh, most beautiful house district in Oregon? Oh, 
uh, whatever district you live in. That is correct. <laughs> district 59. That was a great answer. Uh, who's your favorite baseball team? Uh, the A's. The A's and your favorite football team? The Raiders. Okay. So we will agree on the A's. And I do like the Giants as well. That Bay Area series in 88 was a dream come true. But the Raiders. I mean, that's my brother Brian's team. I, I can't. We're not going to be able to find agreement on that one. Well, that's I'm sorry to hear that. You yeah. know, I'm a Colts fan, so <laughs> yeah. life is a little rough for me right now. Well, so say, talk about life rough for a Raiders fan. <laughs> Are you guys going to Vegas or not? Uh, um, I've been told that that's the plan, but then they went to L.A. and they came back. So it's just a matter of time; they'll end up back in Oakland. Okay. Final question: <laughs> Can Golden State sneak out the series? Yes. Will they? Oh, that's tough. Oh, man. And, well, and you don't I have was... to answer because I said final question and then oh, I asked you an extra one. Oh, You're off the hook. Thank you. Thank you so much. Seriously, I appreciate you taking the time to come here. Uh, for folks that are listening, we're after hours, so uh, I really do appreciate you taking time uh, in your busy schedule to make sure that you can come share with folks what's going on in the Department of Forestry. I think people will be excited to, to learn something about this wonderful department, and uh, I know all of Oregon. Uh, appreciates our forest and appreciates the good work that you folks do. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And I have great staff. And if you uh, want to explore a topic in more depth, I'd be glad to come back. Thanks a lot for helping us get the communication out. Yeah. And thank you, the listeners, for coming back by again. Main Street Politics. Remember, if you need to get a hold of us here in the office, 503-986-1459. Or our district office is 541 719 8745.